you're all in. Great. Welcome, everybody, to the LSE. Um, Professor Stiglitz, distinguished guests, students, members of the press, friends of the LSE. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and I'm a professor of economic and social policy here. It's a real honor to be able to welcome you all here and to this evening's lecture by Joe Stiglitz. It's a great uh, pleasure to welcome Joe back to the LSE. He's spoken here on lots of occasions, including last night. <laughs> uh, Joe, we thought there'd be so much interest in what, we, what you had to say that um, two events would be needed, and it turns out we were right. Um, th this event was an immediate sellout, reflecting the eminence of yourself and the wide widespread interest in the topic of inequality. So thanks very much for giving up your time. Two nights in a row is a lot. Uh, Joe leads, needs little introduction. He's currently a, a university professor at the Columbia University uh, Business School in New York and has associations with Manchester University as well. Uh, he's made major contributions to a very large number of subject areas in economics, many more than were cited in the award to him of the Nobel Prize uh, uh, for economics in 2001. Uh, Joe's always been interested in inequality. You may not know that his PhD thesis included innovative analysis of inequality in the context of economic growth, an overlap in topics that I suspect he may return to tonight. With uh, Tony Atkinson, who's a centennial professor here at the LSE, he's written uh, a really key textbook in public economics, and we're all hoping he'll write a revised edition. <laughs> <laughs> but Joe's not just an, he's not an ivory tower academic. Um, amongst other things, he was a chief economist and senior vice president at the World Bank between 1997 and 2000. He chaired the Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress for President Sarkozy of France, producing the widely cited and influential stiglitz Fatusi report. Uh, Joe is also a best-selling author with many books, including Globalization and Its Discontents, The Roaring Nineties, Making Globalization Work, and Free Fall, all published by Penguin. He's going to be speaking about another new book tonight uh, called The Price of Inequality. Uh, the ground rules are that the talk will be around 45 minutes, and afterwards there will be plenty of time for questions, also around three-quarters of an hour. And after the event, Joe has very kindly agreed to spend some, tining, some, spend some time signing copies of his new book, which are on sale outside. <laughs> so for those of you uh, up with social media and Twitter users, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE Stiglitz. I know we're very much looking forward to your talk, Joe. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Professor Stiglitz to the LSE. Well, it's a real pleasure to be uh, back at LSE again after uh, yesterday. Uh, <laughs> um, this particular book actually uh, rose out of a, an article um, in uh, a magazine that may be a, a little bit uh, unusual venue for normal academic publishing, uh, an article in, in Vanity Fair. Uh, and uh, the article uh, took off from a, a, a key expression in the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln uh, during the Civil War in the United States. And uh, the t uh, when President Lincoln talked about the fighting the war was about whether uh, government of the people, by the people, and for the people would survive. And um, so the title of this article was uh, uh, Of the 1%, by the 1%, for the 1%. 
And uh, that article um, helped uh, generate the, the, uh, one of the slogans of the uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, which is, we are the 99%. Um, well, uh, that article did get a lot more, a larger readership than my original uh, Econometrica article uh, that, that was published in, uh, that came out of my thesis. Uh, what I want to emphasize, um, and this really relates a little bit to the debate that's going on in the United States, but uh, is, I think, uh, broader. Uh, the discussion of inequality is not about the politics of envy. It's a real debate about the justification and consequences of the level of inequality. Uh, and much of this book is about inequality in America, which has grown out of bounds, as I'll try to describe. But uh, the UK is there uh, really uh, almost in second place um, and uh, following in many ways American leadership. Uh, and so for, for England, I think there's a real question about whether this is a particular direction uh, in which you want to follow America's leadership. Um, and what I'm going to try to suggest that uh, we ought to be changing in, in the United States and I think uh, you ought to be thinking about whether uh, you ought to be changing. Uh, in a sense, uh, the simple message of the book is reflected in the title, uh, The Price of Inequality. What I'm arguing is that we are, pacing, face, uh, we are paying a very high price for this inequality. We pay a very high price in terms of economic performance. We also pay a high price in terms of our democracy, in terms of a number of, other, of our other values, like uh, our sense of justice. So um, that is the main, main theme, and, and that none of this is inevitable, that there are uh, alternative policies, there is another way, there are alternative policies which could simultaneously lead to a more dynamic economy, a more efficient economy, and less inequality. So what I'm going to do um, this evening is try first to uh, describe uh, what's happened to inequality, and I'm going to mainly limit myself to the data for the United States. Uh, it's what I know best, but and some of you can actually amplify what I talk about for the UK, and, and, uh, but, but the, pa the patterns in the, United, in the UK are very similar in most ways to that uh, of the United States. Uh, not quite as severe, but still the this uh, similar pattern. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about the causes, and that's really important because uh, I'm going to try to uh, explain to you why the theories of the distribution of income that most of you study here at LSE are wrong. Uh, you still have to learn them, you have to pass your exams, but uh, uh, I want to explain why uh, most of the uh, tenets of the standard theory that has been the basis uh, of much of economic justification of inequality for the last 150 years is, is wrong. And then I'm going to talk about the economic and then the social and political consequences and finally the alternatives. Uh, well, uh, the level of inequality uh, that uh, ex exists in the United States uh, uh, is really uh, is really unprecedented, and it's grown very enormous. It's grown enormously in the last 30 years. Um, the share of the top one percent, top one percent now, 
gets uh, 20% of all income. The share of one, one, that 1% one has, uh, has doubled. The share of the upper one-tenth of 1% one has tripled since 1980. That says uh, 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 a couple of things. Uh, one of them is that we've not always we, we we haven't always had this kind of inequality. It's not an inherent feature of capitalism or the market economy. Then you might ask, well, maybe market economies are changing, and uh, market forces today, inevitably, the way demand and supply works, inevitably is going to lead to more inequality. But again, that's wrong. If you look across countries, there are very large differences in the degree of inequality. There are various measures of inequality, um, but whatever the measure, there are large differences across countries. Um, the United States has the distinction of having the most inequality of any of the advanced industrial countries. At the same time, it, it did have this distinction a number of years ago, and, an, uh, and uh, it continued to increase its inequality. It's also the case that not all countries have been increasing their inequality. A few countries in Europe have managed to stabilize the level of inequality. A few countries in the world, like Brazil, have managed actually to bring down the level of inequality. Uh, these are countries that have been growing very rapidly, but set out, uh, you know, at least one interpretation of what happened in Brazil is that uh, it had a very high level of inequality, one of the highest in the world, and there were severe social, economic, political consequences to that inequality. It was as, as if the society looked over the brink and saw where they were going and said that's not where they wanted to go. And there was developed within the country a broad consensus. And when I say broad consensus, including among the people at the top, that that was not the direction the society went, uh, wanted to go. And so you had Cardoza, somebody on the center right, deciding to make the focal point of his administration uh, broadening education opportunity for everybody. And then you had a successor. Uh, Lulu, having a pro set of programs that were supported by everybody in society, uh, a program to make sure that children had access to food, to medicine. And what's so striking about the Brazilian case is, while they still have a high level of inequality, their level of inequality is falling. So, yes, market forces are global. They're affecting all countries, but the way we shape market forces results in Differences in the level of inequality, differences in the changes in inequality. Now, um, the uh, what is perhaps most disturbing about the uh, aspect of inequality that uh, has been manifested in the United States and increasingly in other countries is uh, equality of opportunity. When the discussion of inequality began in the United States, and it was pointed out how America uh, had more inequality than other countries, um, 
Paul Ryan, who was the head of the uh, Republican Budget Committee and sort of the the leader of their uh, that that their economic uh, uh, he's viewed as their intellectual leader, so called. Um, uh, he said, "We're not interested in outcomes. So what if there's inequality of opportunity? What America cares about is equality of opportunity." Well, he obviously hadn't looked at the data because equality of opportunity is lower in the United States than in any of the advanced industrial countries for which there's data. Now, that seems so opposite of what most people think of as the American dream, you know, the idea of America as a country of opportunity. And to a large extent, those stories were very influential in American history. Uh, many of you uh, may know, probably you don't, uh, stories about Horatio Alger. Uh, this was somebody who grew up from the, uh, uh, you know, rags to riches. Uh, um, and th these were very popular stories a hundred years ago. And they were supposed to inspire young people, young people from working uh, lower, uh, poor backgrounds to work hard. And so they became part of the mythology in the United States that anybody can make it, uh, uh, make it up. And people don't know stories about other migrants and others who have been successful, so it's not impossible. But from the point of view of social science, what matters are the statistics, the likelihood, the probabilities, uh, the mobility matrix, uh, however you measure it. Well, a standard way of measuring it is to talk about the correlation. What is the correlation between uh, a, a child's economic status and that of his parents. And when you look at that, uh, the chances of a, the life prospects of uh, a child in the United States is more dependent on the income and education of his parents than in any other advanced country, which says uh, there is very limited, less mobility in the United States, less opportunity. Now, as I say, UK is not a stellar. Um, there are other countries, uh, the Scandinavian countries in particular, that do much better. One aspect of mobility, obviously, if, if people are moving up in the relative position, uh, in like the countries in Scandinavia, it also means, by definition, that you can't have everybody in the top half. I know all of you in the top 5% of your class, but still, in general, you can't have everybody in the top half of the population. So if people are moving up, what does that mean about people at the top? Some of them are moving down. And what's true in the United States is, not only is there no upward mobility, there's very little downward mobility. If you have the good luck, as many of you, I'm sure, are, born at the top, it means that you have a chance of staying there. And the data for the United States are really quite striking. A child of a, a well-off parent who does poorly in school has better prospects than a child of a poor-off uh, parent who does well in school. So what it says is that, again, reinforcing the view that life prospects are very, very dependent on the luck or you, you might say the skill of choosing the right parent. <laughs> now, um, the uh, recession has in many ma ways made things worse. 
And we keep getting more data as the recession goes on and, and as we get more data about the recession comes in a leg, about how much worse the, the recession has been for inequality. And it's manifested in, in, in a, a whole set of numbers, which suggests that it's going to get much worse going forward. Uh, you know, let me just share with you a, a, a few of these uh, uh, numbers. Um, numbers that just came out a couple of weeks ago uh, show that between 2007 and 2010, the typical American, the median wealth, went down by almost 40 percent, meaning, the, meaning that the, the median wealth of, of America was back to the level of the early 1990s. Two decades in which the typical American saw no increase in his wealth, in which the country as a whole saw a 75% increase in wealth. You put those two numbers together and what you realize is that there was tremendous wealth accretion, but it all went to the very top, and which is why the inequality of wealth is an order of magnitude greater than the inequality of income. So this is an answer to another uh, uh, argument that you sometimes hear from the right, say, oh, uh, yes, it's true that there's uh, some inequality, but one year one person is at the top, another year is another person is at the top, uh, but what we really care about is lifetime inequality. Well, a good measure of what is going on of that kind of inequality is wealth inequality, and just to give another number, uh, the top 1% in the United States has uh, somewhere between 35 and 40% 40, 40 of all, all the wealth. Um, at the same time, in the year of recovery, 2010, 93% of all the increase in income went to the top 1%. So most Americans did not participate. Uh, but as I say, prospects going forward uh, are are that things will get worse. And in this, uh, the numbers I'm going to talk to you about now are, are likely to be even worse in, in the UK. Because what's happening is that there's been cutbacks in public support, spending. Um, the uh, high unemployment not only creates inequality because uh, uh, the unemployed are obviously not doing very well, they're, they're suffering. But because there's a high level of unemployment, wages don't do well, and so the people at the bottom suffer. But public services get cut back, and one aspect of that is a cutback in education. In the United States, uh, the average increase over the three-year period uh, between before and after the recession, the average inc uh, increase across the country in tuition in public schools was 15%. Uh, but in some states, some of our best universities, California, the state of California, the increases in uh, college tuition were over 40%. So you, you then see uh, the conjunction of incomes going down, median real income in the United States today is lower than it was 15 years ago, tuition costs going way up, and unfortunately, a legal framework that I'm going to come to in a second, which says if you take on student debt, you'll not only have to pay high interest, but you will never be able to discharge that debt, even in bankruptcy. It's the only kind of debt you cannot discharge in bankruptcy. 
So it'll be saddled around your neck for the rest of your life. Every student in the United States is graduating now with over $25,000 of debt, but the graduates of the private for-profit schools is much higher. And unfortunately, the graduates of the for private for-profit schools don't get jobs because they don't get much of an education. And um, the government has not been allowed to regulate them because the for-profit private schools, many of which are owned by Wall Street, have been very successful in lobbying against regulations that uh, would prevent the schools that don't have any college graduates, don't get any jobs, have no evidence that they're delivering anything, uh, from uh, getting access to these student loans. Well, uh, if everybody had benefited from this growing inequality, uh, that would be one thing. But the people on the right defend this inequality by the notion of trickle-down economics. Throw enough money at the top and everybody will benefit by a process of trickle-down. There was never any evidence in support of that theory, but what's happened in the United States and other countries shows very forcefully that, that it's not true. I wish it were because we've thrown so much money at the top that if, if it were true, everybody would be well off. But what we've seen in the United States is that while the top has done very well, the median has actually seen its income decrease over the last 15 years. I promised I would uh, make a comment on, on marginal productivity theory, uh, which is the theory that has been used for 150 years, more than that, since John Stuart Mill, at least, for uh, defending inequality. Marginal productivity theory says that the reason that some people earn more is they make a greater contribution to society, that wages, compensation, corresponds to your marginal social contribution. So it's both a, you might say, a moral justification, and it's an argument about why it's actually a good thing. Because it's a moral justification, it says that those who are, have high incomes have made a larger contribution, and therefore it justifies that inequality, and it says, it's important to do it because you have to give incentives. And incentives you know, are a core of the market economy. It's one thing economists agree on. And if you didn't do this, you wouldn't get them to make their marginal contribution, and we would all suffer. So it's a little bit like the trickle-down theory that it says it's not only a moral justification, it's, it's what you need to make an economy work. Well. Belief in the marginal productivity theory uh, got a real hard time uh, with uh, the financial crisis. And I think what happened this week, when the news that was revealed this week, as many of us knew about this beforehand, uh, about what the banks did in LIBOR uh, shows uh, that that's uh, uh, not, uh, uh, that a lot of the compensation doesn't reflect social contributions. Um, during the crisis, what we saw so clearly was that the bankers were walking off with very large compensation, even in banks that they brought to the brink of ruin, 
even as they brought the economy, the global economy, to the brink of ruin. So how could you say that these bankers have made huge social contributions? You know, I jokingly say that, that sometimes in our math class we make a sign error. Um, so uh, a large positive should have been a large negative. So they should have been giving back a lot because they had had such a negative effect and we just made a sign error. Um, but the fact of the matter was uh, there, was no, there was no justification for those uh, bonuses that could be related to their social contribution. But though people like me who had looked at these incentive structures for years had said that the incentive structures showed that they were not designed to provide good incentives. In fact, they were designed to encourage excessive risk-taking and short-sighted behavior. They were designed in order to provide a framework for uh, those for C uh, the CEOs to walk off with, with more money. I saw that very clearly when I was uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, in the Clinton administration. We had a proposal to try to increase the transparency of accounting that would require firms to uh, reveal the value of the stock options that they were giving to the CEOs. We didn't say, don't give the, the stock options. We just said, reveal the cost of it to your shareholders. You know, one of the things is there's no such thing as mana for heaven or there's no such thing as a free lunch. I guess you all got in a free ticket, but anyway, uh, the general principle is still true. Um, the, the, uh, um, uh, so when you pay stock options, what's going on? You're diluting the shares of all the other shareholders. So there's a cost. And you can calculate what that cost is. You Maybe not precisely, but you can provide an estimate. And what we said is, the point of a whole accounting framework is for people to know what's going on. And if they knew what was going on, then maybe they wouldn't be giving these stock options, but at least let's let them know. I can't describe the level of opposition that we got, including from uh, several uh, members of the administration who had been beneficiaries of major stock options, so maybe I'm not surprised. Um, but uh, the net result of it was uh, this initiative failed. And uh, the stock options grew, and that caused distorted incentives, not only for excessive risk-taking. Uh, part of the problem, underlying problem of the crisis, some of you may know that uh, uh, Alan Greenspan uh, was asked to testify in Congress about the, con uh, about the uh, financial collapse, and uh, he said uh, uh, he was surprised uh, that the banks didn't manage their, their risk better. He said there was a flaw in his reasoning because he thought that they would be able to manage their risk better. But I was surprised that he was surprised. <laughs> because uh, one thing that economists uh, agree on, as I said before, was that incentives matter. And you looked at those incentives and they were designed for perverse behavior. And if they hadn't behaved the way they did, we would have to rewrite our textbooks. But fortunately, we don't. Uh, but unfortunately, for the economy, the cost has been in the trillions of dollars. Well, um, the one of the main theses of this book is that the inequality at, that's arisen in uh, 
the United States, the UK, other market economies, is not a reflection, as I said, of differences in contributions, that some are making these amazing contributions and others are not. There are some instances of, of that. Let's be clear, there are some people who do make enormous contributions. Some of them do wind up at the wealthiest list. But many of those who make the most important contributions, discover DNA of, 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 of transistors, lasers, all of these, do not wind up in that, in that list. They didn't do that research because they were motivated by money. And if they were taxed, they would still have done that research. So the really important innovations would not be affected by more progressive uh, taxation. So the thesis of the book is that much of the inequality is what many of you have studied in economics and political science, rank-seeking. You used to think of rank-seeking as a characteristic of oil countries, of natural resource countries, where everybody sees that pile of money arising from natural resource ranks, not from producing anything, but just by the value of the resources that lie there. But what we don't understand countries like the United States and the UK, a large fraction of the income is a large fraction of what goes on, a large fraction of economic activity is rank-seeking. That's what you saw in the financial markets in the LIBOR case. That was just trying to get a larger share of the pie. The difference between rank-seeking and the other activities is rank-seeking is an attempt to get a larger share of that pie, and in that process of trying to get that larger share, the size of the pie gets smaller. And those activities are pervasive in our economies. To go back to the point I made earlier in looking across countries, what the market forces, I said before, are pervasive. But they, what it, the degree of inequality differs across country. What is the implication of that? That means that we are shaping those market forces, and different countries shape them differently. How do we do it? Well, we do it by the laws, the regulations, uh, government spending, tax policy, every part of the rules of the game that we as a society collectively uh, uh, set. They're buried in virtually everything that, that, that is done at the, at the public level. And every market economy is shaped by these rules and regulations. I've already given uh, an example the bankruptcy law in the United States, where I pointed out that students cannot discharge their debts, even in bankruptcy. But at the other extreme, if you go bankrupt, the first, in the United States, the first claimant is the bank's most risky products, those derivatives, those risky products that brought down AIG and that required a $150 billion bailout from the US government. Those are paid before workers, before anybody else. Well, when you do that, what are you encouraging? You're encouraging that kind of activity. Take the tax law. In the United States, speculators are taxed at less than half the rate than people who work for a living. Can you justify that? Is speculation that much more productive than working? They, uh, I think that was a rhetorical question. Uh, <laughs> uh, people talk about the importance of low capital gains taxes for encouraging entrepreneurship. 
But a lot of the uh, income that benefits from the low capital gains taxation is land speculation, land returns to land. Do you think there's more land just because you tax land at a lower, returns on land at a lower rate? No, this is all rents. These are real rents. And that lower tax on rents encourages what? Rent seeking. So we have a tax structure. If you look at it very carefully, it is a tax structure that is designed to encourage rent seeking. Uh, take another uh, example. Uh, some of the wealthiest people in the United States, Mexico, and other countries derive their income from monopolies. In some cases, the monopolies come from an innovation, which they got a patent, but then they leverage that monopoly to make more and more money. Uh, so the social contribution of the patent, one can understand. Leveraging it with a monopoly, anti-competitive practices, uh, actually diminishes the size of the pie. Because how do you get monopoly rents? Restricting output and raising prices. And that makes the economic pie smaller. So the, the, these are examples of how the legal framework has helped encourage rent-seeking, distorted our economy, moved resources in the wrong way. One more example, corporate governance. Everybody talks about governance. Uh, I gave one example in corporate governance. Uh, the CEOs, the management, did not want to have transparency in the stock option. Another example, uh, I described the uh, distorted form of the compensation schemes. But it's not only the form of the compensation schemes, it's the level of compensation. Well, if somebody's working for you, you would have thought you ought to have some say in how they get paid. I mean, it was almost obvious. Well, the standard theory that we talk about, not quite true, but the standard theory is that the shareholders own the firm. Therefore, as shareholders, you ought to have the right to say what the pay of the people who work for you, the managers. But when this was proposed in the United States, the reaction of the CEOs was it would be the end of capitalism as we know it. Of course, it would be the end of capitalism as they know it. <laughs> uh, but other countries, like Australia, have had say and pay for a long time, and it's worked very well. And now in the UK, you're seeing some of the consequences of having that greater transparency because there's a rejection of some of the pay proposals, and for good reason. And the pay commission in the UK pointed out that there is no connection in many of the corporations between the pay and performance. They call it performance pay. But that's just a language to persuade you to justify. In fact, in the United States, just as an aside, it got so embarrassing to call performance pay when there was no performance that they changed the name in many companies to retention pay. <laughs> but then you had to ask, why did you want to retain somebody who'd behave so, who, whose performance was so bad? Uh, they never gave a good answer uh, to that question. Well, uh, there are many other aspects of the inequality in the United States and the UK I haven't had time to talk about. Um, 
this inequality, the growth inequality, is actually a, a, a very pervasive aspect of our society. It's not only the increase of the top, the top 1%, the top one-tenth of 1%. Uh, it's also an increase in poverty and the immiseration of those at the bottom. Uh, the two are linked. When American banks engaged in predatory lending, abusive credit card practices, discrimination, discriminatory lending, where they targeted African-Americans and Hispanics. They were moving money from the bottom of the pyramid to the top. They were making poverty larger and more money going to the top 1%. So the, these aspects of inequality are, are actually linked. And finally, there's a problem of hauling out of the middle class, which has been called the polarization uh, of the labor market. Uh, which, uh, about which there's a, a very active debate about the various sources of that. Uh, some focus on skill-based technical progress, that technical progress is reducing the need for uh, people, for the demand for people without skills and in the laws of economics that's driving down wages. Um, others focus on the diminishing role of unions, uh, uh, their ability to bargain. Uh, others focus on the way globalization has changed the bargaining power, the asymmetric uh, nature of globalization. Example of another way we write down the rules. Uh, we allow free mobility of capital, but not free mobility of unskilled la uh, of labor. Think of the following thought experiment. Let's assume that we have free mobility of uh, capital, I mean free mobility of skilled labor, but you couldn't move capital. And in order to have a well-functioning economy, you would have to attract labor to your shores. Well, think about the difference that our society would be. We would be fighting to have good schools, a clean environment, high wages, rather than fighting, say, let's not have over-regulation of environment, let's not have over-regulation of working conditions, let's lower wages to make our economy more competitive. But in the end, what matters, of course, is not competition. What matters is the well-being of the average citizen. If the way we write our rules results in the only way for us to compete is for most citizens to have their income go down, something's wrong with, with the system. Well, uh, the, the uh, bottom line out, out of all of this um, is uh, that uh, the way we've created inequality in our country and in many of the other advanced industrial countries has not contributed to an increase in productivity and growth, but actually diminished that. And the corollary of that is that if we take actions that reduce that inequality, we can actually have a stronger economy. That the way that's often been presented is that we have a trade-off is wrong. That we can have both more, both more uh, equality and more growth. Well, 
Um, there are many aspects of the, this issue I haven't had time to uh, talk about. Time is running out. Uh, I, I should spend a little, have spent a little bit more time on the way government spending increases inequality, uh, the hidden subsidies, selling government assets at below market prices, procurement at above market prices. Uh, I should have spent more time on, on uh, uh, the lack of progressivity in our tax code. Um, but I, what I want to move on uh, is to talk a little bit more about some of the uh, economic consequences of this inequality. Well, I've already uh, uh, talked about one aspect of that, which is the inefficiency, the distortions in our economy that arise from rank seeking. But there's a second uh, aspect that's related to the current state of the U.S. and uh, global economy, and that is that inequality is associated with uh, a weak economy, weak demand, and instability. And this is not just my view. Even the IMF, not known as a radical organization, uh, has uh, uh, a year and a half ago came out with a report that said that uh, in their investigation of the causes of the crisis came to the view that one of the causes, one of the contributing factors was the growing inequality. So let me spend a minute trying to show the link between the two. What had been happening in the United States was growing inequality. And the problem with inequality, uh, uh, the problem from the macroeconomic point of view is that people at the top don't spend all of their income. In fact, the savings rate on average is 15 to 25 percent. People at the bottom have no choice but to spend all of it. And when you redistribute money from the people at the bottom to the top, demand goes down. So we would have faced the problem of a weak macroeconomy. So how did the Fed and its wisdom respond to this? It said, well, let's create a bubble. You know, they didn't quite say it this way. But if we create a bubble, people will feel rich. And if they feel rich, they'll spend more. And it worked for a while. The bottom 80% of Americans, 80% of Americans, were spending on an average 110% of their income. And that did fill in the hole created by the growing inequality. Now, you don't have to have a Nobel Prize to figure out if you spend 110% of your income, uh, it's not sustainable. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, it, it didn't last even as long as many of us thought, longer than some of us thought. Uh, but what happened was inevitable. The bubble had to break. It did break. And uh, left in its wake a whole kind of set of consequences that we are now struggling to deal with, but made the problems even worse. But this kind of pattern of a bubble rising in association with a high inequality, both cause and consequence, has happened in other countries uh, and in other periods. Well, that brings me now to uh, the question, what can we do about this? Well, actually, once you go through a careful diagnosis of the causes of the inequality, the prescriptions of what you need to do are pretty straightforward. Some of it, a lot of it is trying to think about the various kinds of 
rank-seeking activity and trying to circumscribe it. The abuses in the financial sector, monopoly power, deficiencies in corporate governance, uh, 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 reform of the bankruptcy law. Uh, just think through every legal, every aspect of the rules of the game and think about how they are affecting efficiency and distribution. And they're saying, is that the way we want things to go? Is this efficient and is it fair? And is it creating more inequality? There's some things we have to do beyond that. I mentioned before that um, uh, the government in the United States, for instance, gives away large amounts of natural resources or sells them at well below competitive prices and buys the lots of things at well above competitive prices. Just one example. Healthcare has been very much in the news. As you know, the United States is the last civilized country, advanced country, to recognize the right to uh, survive. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 uh, uh, in uh, 2003, the United States said that uh, extended a, a important benefit, which is a drug benefit, uh, to to the elderly, only to the elderly. Um, but the uh, one aspect uh, of that, you know, of Congress's action, was to add one sentence to that, which was, the U.S. government could not bargain with the drug companies about the prices. Um, that one sentence, the United States government is the largest purchaser of drugs, by the way. Uh, that one sentence had cost the American taxpayer an estimated $500 billion, a half trillion dollars, uh, in over less than 10 years. So that was a giveaway to the drug companies. That's how you create inequality You're, and create inefficiency. Because if you expend that money on education, for instance, it would have increased opportunity. But spending on it as gift to the drug companies, it didn't lead to anything else. And the drug companies, what do they do with it? Do they spend it on research? Yes, some of it goes to research, but more of it is spent on advertising than on research. More of it is spent on research on things like growing your hair, or something I feel sensitive about. But, um, <laughs> but uh, more on that than on things that are life-saving. So. Uh, the fact is that it doesn't lead to, to things that are research on things that are really important. Uh, we also obviously need uh, to, to fix our tax system to make it, again, both fair and more efficient. And the two can work uh, together. Um, one of the questions as one sees what has happened in the United States is, isn't this odd that a democracy has wound up with the kinds of uh, system that we have? Uh, you could understand rank-seeking in these dictatorships in the Middle East. You know, after all, in those countries, if a clique of a few people run the whole show, they get to decide the rules of the game, and they're going to decide the rules of the game for themselves. But in a democracy, it's supposed to be the majority that determines the rules of the game. 
And those of you who studied political science or even economics know that there's a theorem called the median voter theorem that says that in uh, a democracy, the vote, the, the decisive voter, the outcome, is supposed to reflect the preferences of the median voter. That is to say, half the people are supposed to want more public spending and half less. So it's the person in the middle that's supposed to be uh, uh, determinative of where the outcome is. Anybody looking at what's happened in the United States and to a somewhat lesser extent in other countries is that what outcome is more dis better described by one dollar one vote than one person one vote. And things have been way, made much worse in the United States by the, uh, a Supreme Court decision that said that corporations are people uh, and have the right to unbridled spending for campaign contributions, distorting our political process. Uh, revolving doors, lobbying, all of these have distorted our, 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 our process. But what I try to do and describe in the book uh, 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 some of the other mechanisms, uh, making uh, mechanisms by, by which uh, th uh, 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 which have resulted in our system of one dollar, one vote. One of them is a process of disenfranchisement and disillusionment. Throughout our history, at least over the last 150 years, there are systematic efforts to discourage or disallow poor Americans from voting. Uh, those of you who may remember the big controversy over Florida, about how it was very difficult uh, for many of the poor uh, Americans to vote, that they, they were hassled, that there were fewer voting booths that made it more difficult. Well, this is, you know, that brought out what has been a systematic pattern over a long uh, period of time. But most of the uh, failure is a, a kind of disillusionment. When you have the power of money, it's a self-reinforcing cycle because people believe the outcome of the election uh, whether you vote for Republican or Democrat the real winner are the bankers <laughs> and so it doesn't make much difference it's the real winners are the one percent but in fact that attitude leads to giving more power to money because what happens what, what, what happened in the last election in the United States in 2010 only 20 percent of the young people bothered to vote and that means you take a, spend a lot of money to get the voters out. And of course you target those who get out to vote to those who support you. So it increases the role of money in the electoral process. And so you get this vicious circle of more money being needed and more disillusionment. But when the banks invest money in politics or the other people in uh, not always, let me make it clear, this is not, not all of them, some of them are, but many of them, many of them are making these as investments, I use the word very carefully. The bank's political investments did a lot better than their financial investments. They got a higher return in the deregulation and the bailouts and the prevention of more regulation. So. Uh, part of it is this corrupting influence of, uh, of money. And believe it or not, the majority in our Supreme Court explicitly said, just on Monday, 
that money does not corrupt our system, but does not even affect the appearance of corruption. And if you have a majority coming to that view, having seen what has happened in this election, you realize you have a Supreme Court that's out of touch with what is going on. Well, uh, the uh, other aspect of it, though, and in some ways deeper and more difficult to deal with, is that the 1% has been very successful of convincing many of the 99%, many of the rest, that what is in the interest of the 1% coincides with their interest. And you see that in so many areas where, where part, what, they, uh, what, what is striking is if you do, uh, uh, a number of studies recently have looked at, for instance, the question of what is, pe what are people's perception of what are good distributions of income and what are per people's perceptions of what our distribution of income is. So the interesting thing, like you show a pie chart, a chart, a pie chart to a group of people randomly selected, and what you see is that most of them, if you chose the pie chart showing the distribution of income in Sweden versus the United States, almost everybody, Democrat, Republican, young, old, choose Sweden. If you ask them what is the inequality, the distribution of income in the United States, none of them realize how unequal the United States is. They think we are a much more equal society. They think we should be more equal, but they think we're much more equal than we are. And so with that level of misperception, it's not surprising you get results like a majority, a vast majority of Americans uh, supported the abolition of the estate tax. A, a tax that affects only people in the United States whose income combined, you know, husband and wife, for the complicated details, over $10 million. Now, part of the reason is that they believe the United States is a land of opportunity. If you happen to be poor, you're going to win the jackpot and wind up there. If they knew the probability of that, point zero 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 one, they might have a different view. But we've sold them. They've been sold on the notion that they can go from that low, whatever they are, and be leaving a state of over uh, $10 million. And the tax is only on the wealth, the bequest over that. So they don't have to have, be very worried. But they think it's better not to have the, the estate tax. Well. Uh, this inequality is affecting every aspect of American society and affects every aspect of other countries' society. In the United States, because we have more inequality than any of the other advanced industrial countries, we see it more dramatically. We see it in our system of justice, a system of justice where, to just give you one example, we threw people out of their homes who didn't owe any money on the basis of affidavits that the bank signed saying that they did owe money. They perjured themselves to the court. They said that they had examined the record. They hadn't. And not one of these people has ever been held accountable. They had to pay a fine eventually. But as the Attorney General of Massachusetts put it, I think, very... They thought that they were too big not only to uh, 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 fail, they were too big to be held accountable. 
And the individual bankers within them have not been held accountable. Well, that leads me to the last question. Uh, uh, is there any hope? Uh, and let me end uh, 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 on a, uh, uh, as I said, for American audiences, that you really have to end on, on a note of hope because they really don't uh, uh, like to be told that things are, are bleak. I'm told that in Europe, people uh, are willing to take a, a little bit stronger dose of uh, a dour uh, message, uh, but especially when it's aimed at the United States. Um, <laughs> But I remind you that most of what I say is true also here uh, in just a slightly lesser form. Um, there are uh, a couple elements of hope. Let me just describe very quickly. One of them is um, there are many people at the top who do understand that it's in their enlightened self-interest and their self-interest rightly understood that we have a society that has shared prosperity. There are a lot of people at the top who are actually fighting for this. So when I characterize the 1%, I want to make sure you understand it's not all of them. It's not a conspiracy. There are, there are the, among the supporters of the kind of reform are those, you know, like Warren Buffett, who said it was wrong for him to pay a lower tax rate than his secretary. Um, and they've been very active, very vocal in this issue. And the question is, can we convince enough of those people that, like in Brazil, they join in in, in, a, in, a, in a broader social movement to create a more equal society? The second hope is that we are still a democracy and that the majority will realize that the sex of policies that we've had have not been good for our country, for the West, for our democracy, for our system of justice. From American experience, uh, there have been uh, episodes where we've reached high levels of inequality in which we've looked over the brink and we've decided to pull back. The Gilded Age was one and that led to the Progressive Era. Uh, the Roaring Twenties was another and that led to the amazing legislation in the United States in the 30s, the benefits of which we still uh, are, are recipients. So what I'm hoping, my hope is that, that um, we will once again realize the direction in which we're going, realize the consequence if we don't change, and realize that uh, the prospect of shared prosperity uh, is the only way uh, forward. Thank you. Joe, thank you very much for a, a very stimulating speech on topics of critical contemporary interest in not just the US, but clearly also the UK. Um, it's really important to hear both the diagnosis right through to prescription. So we have time for questions, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so please put your hands up if you'd like to ask a question, and I'll have the uh, horrible task of choosing among you. Um, it is very important for you to announce who you are. Name and affiliation, please. And please wait for the roving microphone. First hand I noticed is the gentleman up there in the blue shirt. And then 
Secondly, the guy down here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Andrea Varassi. I study global politics here at LSE. Uh, I was wondering, in a recent poll I read on economists, 5% of the Americans declared they're convinced of being in a 1% of the holders of wealth, and uh, approximately 25% are convinced to be in the top 10% of the economy. That said, do you think there is a clear case of information asymmetry, and does uh, the issue of inequality should be communicated in a more clear way to the American people and not only, also in order to counterbalance the enormous power of uh, lobbying uh, companies. Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, and I, I try to mention that, that, that one of the problems that we face is that people do not understand uh, the magnitude of, of the inequality in the country. Uh, and uh, uh, in a way, They've been sold. Uh, they've been sold a bill of goods, uh, and it's particularly a problem in the United States. Actually, the numbers are worse in the United States, but it's actually true in many other countries, because Americans want to be optimistic, and part of being optimism is to say, "Well, things may be bad, but really, uh, over the long run, I'm going to do well, and I'm part of that that upper five percent, upper one percent, even though." the numbers uh, wouldn't put me there. So, um, uh, and, and, and that's part of this myth of, of uh, the American dream of everybody making it to the top. Uh, very strongly felt, and most people believe those Horatio Alger stories, very much part of our culture. Very important for us to try to dispel that myth, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Okay. So, um, so my name is Gurnoor, I'm a student of uh, international political economy at LSE. Uh, in terms of rent-seeking activity at the global level, there is some a notion said that regulation is national and risk is global. So the, the prospects of raking in that activity can be that macroprudential uh, uh, macroprudential regulation should be the way forward. Do you think in the environment which we are, that can be effective and we can have an effective solution based on that? Um, there's been a very big debate about whether there should be a, uh, uh, in a global economy, we should wait for global coordination, a globally coordinated regulatory system. Uh, I think the answer is no. Uh, for the most part, this goes back to uh, what I view as one of the major sources of rent seeking, which I talked about in the financial sector. Uh, they don't want uh, regulation, and they think that they, uh, by using the argument, uh, we need coordination, they know the coordination will never happen, and uh, that has been a very effective instrument for ensuring that nothing happens, which is what they want. Uh, and it's not just about macroprudential regulation, it's about transparency. Uh, this is uh, the, what happened in in London uh, is one example, but there are lots of others. Uh, uh, what happened? Uh, um, lack of transparency in the credit derivative markets. Lack of transparency, and and one of the reasons why financial markets are at risk of freezing up right now is because everybody knows that they don't know their own balance sheet, let alone that of any other bank that they are dealing with. You talk, just to, just to go, you know, European crisis, uh, the, just a little while ago, uh, there was a, a long debate about uh, restructuring the Greek debt. Uh, 
everybody realized that it could have global implications, but nobody knew what they were because the banks were so non-transparent. The regulator, the ECB, didn't know. So what did the ECB do? And this is a real example of, uh, I've been very critical of the central banks. I have a chapter on, on how bad the central banks have been. But the ECB at that point said, uh, we don't, uh, we want, uh, we, you know, in effect, we want the banks to have insurance, but we want the insurance not to pay off. Now, if you have insurance, you want the insurance to pay off. What do I mean? They wanted it to be a, not, uh, a major re, uh, a re, a restructuring in which the, bank, the bonds were written down by 50%, but it not to be a credit event. Why did they want it not to be a credit event? If it were a credit event, it would trigger the credit default swaps. What would that mean? Some of the banks had actually been engaged in gambling, and they would lose. If the banks had only been buying insurance, that would be a good thing. And the ECB came out on the side of the gamblers. It's more important to protect the gamblers than to protect the banks that have bought insurance. And that shows when you have so-called independent central banks, what you do is you have central banks that get captured by those who they're supposed to regulate. Thank you. The, w the woman in the black dress is the first, and the second guy was up, up here in the front. The third was the gentleman in the, white, in the front with the white jacket. Um, I, I'm Lynn Forrester de Rothschild. I, um, I was a student uh, in 1980, from Colum graduated from Columbia Law School. And so I graduated in 1980 when I had, you know, 20 years growing up really believing the American dream. Um, and I really did believe coming from nowhere anywhere, anywhere was possible as long as I was educated, hardworking, and all those good <laughs> things. So the American dream really means something to me. Um, and this, this inequality issue, I think, is really the defining issue uh, for, our, for our country, for, for many countries right now. But I'm, I'm concerned about something Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late great senator, said, who was actually at LSE in his youth. He said, in, he said that you can have your own opinions, but you can't have your own facts. And I'm very worried that this discussion about inequality is splitting down between right and left when it really should be just an American decency issue, that inclusive capitalism has to be the only in capitalism. So I, my specific question is, in your book, you rely on the work of Pictet and Saez, who um, obviously did a very thorough analysis of income, but the, but the, the comments on, on what they did is they took the tax returns over that 30-year period, and, and by doing that, they left out things like welfare payments, food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, all health insurance benefits, and they also were dealing with pre-tax numbers, which skews the inequality numbers. Um, and, and in fact, an analysis you know, that I saw said that if you take the numbers that you use, the median income during that 30-year period grew by only 3.2%. And if you throw everything else in, the median income grew by 32%. Um, and so I worry, or are you worried, that the raw data that we're using 
is wrong, number one. That's my number one question. My second question, if I can have one, is this no, you, short I'm sorry, one. you can't. There are oh. many people who want a question. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I think, one's more. Uh, okay. First, I, I agree with you that there needs to be a greater understanding of the, of, of the common facts. And, and that's why uh, I was so upset. One of the political candidates said that uh, you shouldn't be talking about inequality in public. It should be talked in hushed tones behind closed doors. It really needs to be talked about openly and try to get a consensus about the numbers. Um, and I try in my book both to talk about before tax and transfer and after tax and transfer. Um, and uh, that's why you have to use different sources. I mean, uh, you could talk about this probably better than I could. but. Uh, let me just uh, say, using tax and transfers has one big problem. I mean, using tax as a base, like Piketty and Sias do, has one problem. It's only reported income. And in some sense, it probably under underestimates the degree of inequality in, our, in the before tax inequality, because in fact, we know that there was uh, uh, some degree of, of um, there was some degree of underreporting, tax avoidance, tax uh, that, that. So I think actually the problem probably is worse. Now, the second part of the question is uh, how do, you know, if we start including welfare payments and after, you know, uh, uh, and, and take out taxes, uh, that's where the OECD has actually done some fairly good work looking across countries uh, and, and trying to look at the, 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 the before tax and after tax and transfer. And their results still show after tax and transfer, the U.S. is at the top of the league as the most unequal society. In fact, one of the striking things is that we do less to correct the before tax inequality than many countries that have less inequality. Not a surprise. And that was one of the points I wanted to make. There is this nexus between economic inequality and political inequality. Uh, if you have more economic in inequality, you're going to get inequality of political power in almost any democracy because of the, of the, of the way that money has influenced. The result of that is that more political inequality reinforces the economic inequality in a vicious circle and makes it more and more difficult to, to break out of. One of the things I try to emphasize in the book is, you know, don't get hooked up on, on particular numbers. That's, that, that is a, you know, it's important to know the, the, the numbers, but uh, the, the qualitative factors of, that have been driving what is going on, uh, the fact, the qualitative fact that we have more inequality than we did before, and that we have more inequality than other countries are really, and that, the, that this is a question, question of choice because different countries do have markedly different inequality. Scandinavia and the US are markedly different, so different that no matter how you fight about the, the numbers, you're gonna to come to the same conclusion. Thank you. Gentleman in the front row here, and then there was the guy in the white jacket up front, in the front row of the, no, the guy in the front, thank you. Um, consumption has uh, been taking a beating recently, uh, especially the reputation of it. Um, however, it does at least employ a lot of people in the service sectors, offsetting uh, those that have been made redundant through productivity gains. And I'd like to know your, um, your judgment, as it were, 
about um, using happiness as a unit of output in society? Oh, well, uh, I, I uh, had a commission that uh, called the Internet Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress, and we emphasized that GDP and income is not a good measure of well-being, of economic performance, of, uh, of social progress, um, and that there are other dimensions that have to be taken into account. Uh, uh, one example, for instance, that's really relevant today is that people actually uh, uh, find meaningful work important. As a standard economic model says that work is a negative, but in fact, uh, most people, for most people, meaningful work is an important part of their well-being. And when they lose their job, they they, they have all kinds of adverse consequences uh, to that. Um, the there is some discussion in my book of uh, what are the determinants of, of well-being. Uh, uh, one of the concerns that I raised and, and others have raised is that um, one's sense of well-being is affected by one's relative position. And that if you see yourself as having much less income, consumption, whatever, than your neighbors, you feel less happy. And there's actually some interesting empirical work that has uh, looked at this, that people who live in neighborhoods where, they, where their neighbors are, well, are, are much better off tend to get more into debt. And one of the results, they tend to spend more. And uh, the result of that is all kinds of adverse consequences over, over time. Um, good evening, uh, Professor Sticklitz. Uh, my name is Huang. I'm a first-year undergraduate at the LSE. Um, I think, thank you so much for coming. It's, it's uh, a really great lecture, and I think most of us are very convinced, uh, except there's one uh, very important uh, argument from the American right that I haven't heard the answer to tonight, and I'd just like to uh, hear it clarified, which is that, uh, as you have said, it is actually the... Uh, the rich that really save because they can uh, about 15 to 20 percent and the savings of course uh, comes back in terms of investment into the economy they are the big investors in the economy and uh, although the US has fallen behind in certain uh, aspects uh, its dynamic efficiency and especially its technology in terms of Silicon Valley remains the leader of the world uh, that China's very very far behind um, and of course, even though you said that you know these young talented people will uh, invent and do all these anyways because they want to, uh, the fact is that they still need the funding. Facebook, for example, Mark Zuckerberg, he had to find the funding to to get it off the ground. Um, so, where, where does this leave us if we become if America becomes an economy where it's um, you know more yeah. equal but less investment? Well. Uh one needs to look at some of these issues from a, a global point of view, and it's interesting that you talked about savings because Bernanke, uh, shortly before the crisis, was complaining about a savings glut, uh, that there was too much savings uh, in the world. Um, I think he was wrong. Where he went wrong was that the financial system didn't work. The saving, saving among the wealthy or among any group 
uh, around the world didn't do what it was supposed to do. There are vast needs around the world. Uh, some of you come from developing countries. You know how much is needed for infrastructure, for uh, uh, investments in human capital. Uh, uh, the world needs to be retrofitted for global warming, uh, which will require huge investments. But the financial market didn't address these needs of our global society. It went in to trying to exploit the poorest Americans and to provide houses beyond their capacity to pay. So uh, very little of it went to the venture capital, to the Googles. Now, the great strength of America's financial market is that at least a little of it went there. Uh, but as a fraction of the financial market, it's very small. And uh, that's because most of it is engaged in the, a very disproportionate part of it is engaged in rent seeking. And that's where the theme of my, uh, what I'm talking about is if we got rid of that rent seeking, more of the capital would go into innovation. Now, from the, one more point, from the narrow perspective of a single country like the U.S. that has argued for globalization, the argument for saving and that that saving is linked to investment in the U.S. is totally destroyed because Americans, when they save, have the opportunity of investing anywhere in the world. When the Fed engaged in QE2, what happened? It increased the liquidity, it provided more money, but did the money go where it was needed? To rejuvenate the American economy? To provide money for small businesses that were struggling and going bankrupt? because they couldn't get access to credit? No. It went where it wasn't needed. It went to China, it went to India, it went to Brazil, that had to create walls to stop the inflow of money in economies that were already overheated. So uh, the point is that, uh, yes, you do have to have savings, but you also have to have financial markets that redirect the savings where it's needed. And that's not true in, the, in, 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 in today's global marketplace. Thank you. This, the gentleman there with the hand up there with the suit jacket, and then the guy at the back with the. Yeah. Uh, thank you uh, for those particulars. Um, I think you're preaching to the converted, the <laughs> all egalitarians here. But I mean, you said that democracy is a hope, and democracy is the means of uh, reducing inequality. But you know, we had democracy, and yet our inequalities are increasing. So, uh, what I would like to ask you what is so robust about inequality and capitalism? that it survived the uh, democracy. What is the what? What, 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 why, what is it about capitalism and democracy that is still robust in front of all this inequality? Why hasn't it, hasn't it done its job? Um, well, I, you know, I, I try to explain in my book some of the reasons that our democracy has not been able to curb these excesses that have actually undermined the efficiency of our economy uh, and uh, which have contributed so much to inequality. Um, you know, I, I talked about uh, this process of disillusionment, uh, disenfranchisement, uh, and this problem, th this um, notion that uh, one of the great achievements of the market economy has been to learn how to sell market anything. You know, take the cigarette companies. Uh, they persuaded very large fractions of Americans that cigarettes did not have any adverse health effects, didn't cause cancer, even though they had in their own files the evidence that it did. 
It was a very su successful campaign. They said there was no credible evidence. They knew that there was. Well, if you can persuade so many people to buy a toxic product like cigarettes, you can get them to buy a toxic idea as well. And you can learn how to market ideas just like you can market products. And many of the people at the top have the resources. They now have the tools from behavioral economics, from psychology, from marketing, in which to sell ideas. They know how to do it. They precisely, I, I can't tell you how, how precise they try to target. They think about which words are going to get what emotional response. Um, that's what a lot of the political consultants work on. Uh, and uh, they have the resources. So the fact is that uh, we have a, a system that actually is uh, resulted in selling ideas that often are uh, not uh, consistent with reality. Okay. There's a gentleman at the back who's been waiting. We're into the last five minutes, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, hi, Professor Krugman. Uh, thanks a lot again. Uh, uh, Misha Klamesh from uh, Gigi Press, the Japanese news, news agency. Um, <laughs> Here again. Um, uh, I've got a question uh, about uh, Japan, uh, because I think Japan's quite, quite interesting economically over the past 30 years, and I think perhaps maybe you could say that among um, economists, it's sort of regarded as maybe a bit of a philosopher's stone, that if you can look at Japan as a case study and you can, under and you can understand what happened to Japan, you can maybe unlock what's happened to the you know, UK, Europe, and the US in the past four to five years. Um, and I just want, and um, in reference to Professor Krugman, uh, where uh, Professor Krugman has talked about uh, this issue of liquidity traps, and uh, he wrote a very interesting paper in 1998, which I read about liquidity traps. So he talked about the ISHM, I think, by Fisher in the 30s, um, and he was talking about uh, uh, um, uh, the special nature of the Japanese slump and how they tried a fiscal stimulus, I believe, and they built loads of bridges to nowhere, but it didn't work. And then they tried uh, monetary policy, uh, where they had very low uh, interest rates. And they were trying to get Japanese people to spend, but they were just saving their money. So they couldn't get any money into the e economy. And Professor Krugman said that you have to, um, the, the central bank has to set a negative interest rate um, and also try and increase inflation to try and get uh, Japanese people to spend, if that's my understanding. So my question is, um, is the US economy, is it in a, in a liquidity trap, or does it, go, does it risk going to a liquidity trap? Um, and also, I understand that I think it was Ken Ragoff um, in his book, uh, Eight Centuries of Folly, um, was that he talked about that they solved this question of, uh, of uh, a GDP to debt ratio, that once it's at 90%, that the Keynesian uh, stimulus becomes, um, uh, basically doesn't work, it's killed, because then the debt becomes too large. And I think Krugman and Ragoff have had running battles about this. So, so what's your view there? I mean, is, is Okay, well, let me... Let me, <laughs> let me. Uh, those are big questions, which are another lecture. Uh, I've been told I have one minute, but let me try to answer. And it's a macro issue rather than inequality, but I'm going to uh, end with one comment about inequality. Uh, first, um, the concept of liquidity trap was a very central to, to Keynes's discussion. Uh, he was concerned about the inability to lower real interest rates. What was going on in the Great Depression is interest, the prices were falling about 10% a year in the United States. Uh, even, got, even if you could get interest rates down to 1%, that meant, or 0%, you still had a real interest rate of 10%. And that high real interest rate was going to discourage investment. Uh, that was uh, the, the, the idea. 
we are in a totally different situation today, and this is where you know uh, Paul and I don't agree, don't disagree about very much. But this is one where he's wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, right now, the T bill rate in the United States is basically zero. Uh, the inflation rate is around two percent. Uh, depends on you know, two, three percent, and so the real interest rate is really minus two or three percent. And what has been the effect on investment? Not very significant. Not gotten us out of out, out of our. Uh, uh, no, does he believe if we can go from minus three percent to minus thirteen thirteen uh, percent, would it be better? Well, if you just gave a billion dollars, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars away, maybe that would happen. There is a problem. There is a a. Uh, uh, a different kind of liquidity trap than uh, Paul talked about, and it illustrates what's wrong with a lot of macroeconomics. The problem is that the way the Fed gives money is through the banking system. And the problem is the banking system isn't lending. It's not the old-style ISLM curve that uh, is through. The fact is that particularly the banking system isn't lending to small and medium-sized enterprises, and that's because the, the banks that focus on that, the small and regional banks, uh, are not in good health, and the borrowers don't have the collateral that will satisfy the lenders. So it's a kind of liquidity trap, but it's very different. Another reason I already mentioned uh, in re response to one of the other questions which is uh, in a world of globalization, which is not the world that Keynes wrote about in, in the 30s. In the world of globalization, you put out more liquidity, it looks around the world for the best place to invest that money. And the answer is not in the United States. So the Fed is living, pretending it lives in a closed economy. The fact is we're in a world, an open economy and uh, its policies are not, uh, are not working. Um, the uh, notion that uh, Rogoff put forward that the, uh, you, you reach the end of the world when you reach a critical debt-GDP ratio of 90%, 80%, total nonsense. And I think it's an embarrassment. I, if any of you had written that, uh, I hope your teacher would give you a D minus. Um, uh, why do I say that? I don't mean any insult to anybody when I say that. but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe I should call on somebody to say what they should have done uh, in doing that study. You want to talk about the conditions. Uh, it depends on the circumstances. The United States left World War II uh, with a debt-GDP ratio of 130 percent. And we had, over the next 35 years, the most uh, successful, highest rate of growth, and a growth that was shared prosperity. We, we grew together. No problem uh, in terms of economic growth. There was not a crisis. We managed it well. I don't want to say that it, you know, that we could have done anything. But we built a rogue system. Uh, we we had our our uh, uh, Spooknik program. We had our education programs. We did a lot of public investment. We didn't stick hold back on that public investment because we grew. The debt the debt GDP ratio uh, fell down. But remember, the way we got that debt was not the best way of getting debt. It was the way we got that debt by having to fight a war. And when you fight a war, you're not spending money on investments. You're spending money on munitions. 
So in some sense, we were starting that with that debt-GDP ratio without the investment that you would have hoped that today you're getting, when you get debt, you're investing it in people and technology and infrastructure. That's different from the way we got the debt back in, before, during World War II. So it all depends on how you get your debt and how you manage the debt. So there's no magic number uh, about that. And some people have looked at this much more analytically and, and, and have actually shown that there is nothing to that kind of hypothesis. That is an example of how people use uh, data for a political purpose. You know, there have been a lot of countries with high debt GDP ratios that have run into problems. You know, that's absolutely true. But that doesn't say that will happen in the United States. It doesn't say it will happen in the UK. It really depends on what you uh, spend your money on. If you were a firm and you took your money and, and, and uh, right now in the United States we can borrow a zero interest rate. We have a backlog of projects with returns of 20, 30, 40 percent. If we borrow money at zero interest rate and invest it at 20, 30, 40 percent, our country's balance sheet is being improved. And we could address some of the problems of inequality that we face. We can address some of the problems of global warming and the environment, some of the problems of infrastructure. So the answer is it would make our economy stronger and it would lower our debt GDP ratio over the long run. So uh, this notion that we shouldn't borrow anymore uh, uh, just because, just because we have a high debt GDP ratio is, is nonsense. And finally, let me say one other thing about Japan. Um, it's very hard, you know, different countries are in different circumstances. Japan has uh, close to a zero population growth rate, and obviously if you have a zero population growth rate, your, your growth dynamics are different in a, than a country in the United States where the labor force is growing at 1%, or would grow normally at 1% if we, we had a normal economy uh, of our we were back to recovery. One of the remarkable things about Japan so far is that while they've had uh, a long period of uh, not very strong growth, and I think you have to say it's not been very strong, um, in terms of well-being is one of the questions. Well-being, there's many ways in which the suffering from that slow growth is markedly different than in the United States, which is even now growing a little bit faster. In Japan, the unemployment rate has remained relatively low. In the United States, close to one out of six Americans who would like a full-time job can't get one. In, you know, in Japan, there are relatively good safety net. In the United States, uh, there are millions of people for whom there are no longer any unemployment benefits. There are no welfare payments. There's no support system at all. There's no social protection. Uh, so, um, and as, as you all know, we still don't have an adequate public health care system. So uh, the fact of the matter is that, that uh, the consequences of the economic recession differ across countries. Um, and uh, the way you manage your economy, or the way you structure your economy, can have very, very, very big differences, even though the same market forces are, are, are at play. Um, and uh, 
so when we talk, I talked about how the recession was having such a negative effect on uh, the poor and even the middle class in the United States, uh, that's a result of the way we structured our economy. And there are other economies that have managed economic fluctuations far better. And I think that's one of the things the United States uh, should learn. One of the worries that I have of some of the other countries is, uh, this country in particular, is that it's maybe going in the wrong direction. Thank you very much, Joe. Uh